As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Episode 70 of the Keith Law Show, presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. My guest this week is going to be Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, formerly at Baseball Prospectus, which is how we first met 24 years ago. First, I would just like to mention I did have a piece go up at the end of last week, which ranked the five farm systems that had done the most to improve since my ranking of all 30 farm systems went up back in February. So this is considering what teams did at the trade deadline, as well as what they did in the summer's draft. There's been some pretty spirited discussion below that post. I don't usually comment in the comments, but I have done so on a couple of recent posts because people have asked really good questions that I thought deserved answers. And I appreciate that. I want to let you know that I'm, I'm seeing the good questions, and that's why you're seeing me in those comment sections more. It is really great to see, and it's giving me a chance to maybe further explain some of my thinking in a, a really civil and, and, I hope, informative manner for everybody. So I just wanted to let everyone know I, I am seeing that. I'm seeing how much you guys are clicking, subscribing, reading, and it means a lot to me. I really do appreciate your readership. I do also want to mention some of you also follow me for board game content. Thank you so much for that. Last week, I actually ended up having three pieces reviewing board games go up on different sites. Uh, as I do every two weeks over at Paste, I had a new board game review of a game called Juicy Fruits, not related to the chewing gum. Better. I never liked that gum anyway. And also did a shorter review of a game called Cloud Age. They were both from the same publisher, so I just bundled them together. I also had my first byline over at Polygon, where I looked at the second edition of one of my favorite games, especially my favorite complex game or heavy board game of all time, Great Western Trail. That is coming out in a new second edition this fall with a lot of changes to the art, some small design changes, as well as the addition of a solo mode, which I actually think is a great thing for a lot of board games, especially longer ones, because even though I have other players in the house... Sometimes they look and they say, Dad, that's two hours. I have homework. Okay, I understand. Uh, as well as a little mini expansion to make it a little bit different from the original version of Great Western Trail. I own both, and I don't think I need the first edition anymore. I think the second edition has everything plus a little something extra. So that's over at Polygon. You can always find my reviews at Paste as well. And finally, I did just want to mention my own email newsletter. 
If you go to tinyletter.com slash Keith Law, it's entirely free. It's not baseball content. It usually includes a short essay on just sort of whatever's going on in my life. It is also a way to catch up on everything I've written for every site. I always include all of my links at the bottom of each edition of the newsletter. Well, now it is my pleasure to be joined by my old friend, former colleague, a lifetime or so ago, maybe two lifetimes ago, back at Baseball Prospectus, that is Joe Sheehan. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe underscore Sheehan. You can also subscribe to his email newsletter, which I think is essential reading. You can go to joesheehan.com to subscribe. I have been on the subscription rolls for an extremely long time now. Sometimes Joe even lets me pay him for his work, which everyone should do because his work is really good. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, good to be on, Keith. I'm kind of doing a tour of the athletic podcast right now. I got to do Rates and Barrels a couple of weeks ago. So speaking of your newsletter, uh, shortly before we recorded this, you sent out the latest edition where you talked about the new best player in baseball. Needless to say, I might be slightly biased on the subject, but I certainly agreed with you. Who is the best player in Major League Baseball and why? Fernando Tatis Jr. has taken that mantle from Mike Trout. And it's not a who has the highest war in a given season question. It's more of a, a, a soft question. And it involves how well you're playing right now and how well you have played. And there's an X factor in there as well. And, you know, Trout has been the best player in baseball for since, you know, took the mantle probably from Pujols to go back eight or nine years. But the combination of I won't say Trout's declining, but he's certainly changing as a player. The lack of speed, showing up on defense, he doesn't run as much. Um, offensively, in the batter's box, he's still great. Uh, but Tatis plays a more valuable position, shortstop. He has, he's not quite the hitter Trout is, but he's right there. He's one of the four or five best hitters in the game. And he runs, he plays defense better than Trout at this point. So, you know, Tatis was also great last year. So it's not like, this is a one season evaluation. He's been coming up. He's been catching up to trout. And I think now, especially with trout, obviously only playing 30 odd games this year, we can say Tatis has lapped trout for the title of best player in baseball. Yeah. To me, the value that Tatis has always, uh, that's always been potential. I shouldn't say has always provided, but the potential that's always been there has been that it's so across the board. It's at the plate and it's in terms of, average and ability to get on base and power and even he's exceeded my power expectations for him and he's also a runner and a really smart pace runner and he plays a position in the middle of the field although at least temporarily he's not going to and we can maybe talk about what the future might potentially hold for him but when he was coming up at least as a prospect he was a shortstop and a really athletic one with good hands and good range and plenty of arm and had a chance to turn into I thought a pretty good shortstop that hasn't really quite been true so far in the majors but it's rare to see a player, I mean, we typically only have maybe two or three in the majors at any given time, who is so across the board in how he contributes. You mentioned a couple of the other candidates in the newsletter. You, you can get to those maybe. But you know, who else are they? Who else is even in that conversation where it's not just, say, a bat like peak Miguel Cabrera was or now Vlad Guerrero Jr., wonderful player, but it's strictly just what he does at the plate. To be the best player in baseball while not having defensive value, both position and play, is very hard. And I mentioned Pujols earlier. You know, he was such a good defensive player at first base, in addition to being the hitter that he was, that he was able to cop that mantle for a while. But generally, we're looking up the middle. We're looking at shortstops and center fielders for the most part. Um, you know, catcher maybe, you know, Mike, Mike Piazza might have had a claim. Uh, corner outfielder, you know, Mookie Betts has been a center fielder playing right yeah. field 
for the bulk since going to the outfield. And he's somebody you could look at as part of this conversation. Other than the one MVP season, um, which of course, you know, really wasn't, it was basically equal to Trout at his very best. Um, I'm not sure he's ever had that. He's been a top five player, but I'm not sure even now I'd put him ahead of Tatis. And if, if Betts had been healthy all year, he's had his injury issues as well. He's having a very good year, but it's not the, oh my God, you must be the best player in baseball year. It's, it's not an insult to anybody else in this conversation. <laughs> It gets framed that way, yeah, right? Always, if you say, well, this guy's, this guy's a top five player, but not the best, right. you're, you're, you're crapping on him. And no, obviously I'm not doing that. Um, but to me, coming into the season, you know, the possible successors to Trout were starting to come on the horizon. And you looked at Tatis, Ronald Acuna Jr., who, if not for his own injury, would be in this conversation, mm-hmm. although he's behind Tatis. I think there was a case for Jacob deGrom, and it's very hard for a pitcher to claim this mantle. But you look at deGrom's last couple of seasons, he was certainly in the conversation only throwing 92 innings. I think you've got to kind of take him out of it as well. And this is of course, one of the defining issues of the 2021 season is all of these injuries. So if you want to talk about bets, Soto is going to be in this conversation. I think you looked at, I I think Garrett Cole is probably underrated at this point in his career, but put it all together. And to me, Tatis over the last four months has caught and lapped trout. And which isn't to say that trout isn't going to come back next year and hit 310 with weeks and power. (laughs) But I think the days of him being a plus center fielder, I think the days of him being a 30 steel guy are certainly over. And I worry with Trout that is the the last couple of injuries now. Are we seeing phase two of Mike Trout where he's an elite player who's just hurt a lot? Maybe he's one of those, he's really good when he's healthy. I understand this could be a criticism of Tatis Jr. so far in his career, but that when Trout is healthy, he's at least still on on the short list of the best players in baseball. But maybe as he gets older, we haven't seen a lot of guys with his body type, right? He's a football player in some ways playing baseball. A bit of an exaggeration, but he's certainly built like one. He always, you know, it's a little bit of the uh, Mr. What was those little Mr. Books, right? Mr. Square, you know, large, broad shoulders. You know, he looks like he should be rushing at a defensive line somewhere. And maybe he doesn't age well. Maybe he plays well but continues to get hurt. And I feel like this has been a dictum since we were doing stuff on BP and no, felt like nobody was paying attention, but that um, I think this was one of your things was that the best indicator of whether you, you always argued that staying healthy was a skill, if I remember correctly. And maybe if someone else, you said the best indicator of whether a guy's going to get hurt is whether he's gotten hurt in the past. And maybe these rising pace of injuries for trout, maybe it's nothing. I hope it's nothing, but maybe that says, Hey, trout's not going to be a 150 game a year guy anymore. And that does change what he's worth and how the angels maybe construct their roster around him. I think you've given me credit for smart things. Will Carroll said, which is fine. I'll take credit <laughs> for uh, I actually think Tatis I'd be more worried about than Trout. I say it for this reason, Tatis has repeatedly had the same injury, this, mm-hmm. this shoulder issue that probably is eventually going to have to have surgery for. And that to me makes him a greater reason. There's a point of weakness that we can identify. And that could keep taking If you look at Trout, you know, Trout dove into second base and, and ruptured his thumb mm-hmm. a couple of years back against the Marlins. And I want to say last year, the two years ago, the injury was also. Um, you look at last year, it was a 53 game season. I think he missed a couple of, and he missed a couple of days because he had a kid. And of course, this year now, the calf. This is the calf is the first thing that's like a muscular injury that you go, oh, okay, that's a problem. So it's been three or four different injuries. Giancarlo Stanton for a while had the same reputation, but it was the same thing. He got hit in the face. He uh, hurt his knee uh, trying to stretch a, a play at first base. It was a bunch of different things. That guy is unlucky as opposed to necessarily being <laughs> chronically injured. Uh, so I'd be curious. To, I'm curious to see where this goes for Tatis and Trout. Uh, I think, you know, 
the years that Trout had interrupted by injury were looked like they were going to be amazing. And I've written about this by Trout before, where he's never had that Christian Yelich half. He's never had that you know 1,200 OPS run that got everybody's attention. And he was in the middle of one of those two years ago, whether he had thumb injury. And I just I'd like to see him have that Barry Bonds year before it's all said and done. Look, he's to me he's still the best player who has ever played the game. But I think there's certainly an underappreciation of him in the larger sports world. And either it's going to take a great postseason run or some kind of history-making regular season to people to understand. Because I think if Tatis goes on to be the best player in baseball for a while, or if it's Acuna or Chisoto, whoever, we're almost going to see people forget just how great Trout was from age 20 through age 28. Just to follow on that point you raised about Tatis, if you were you know, knowing just what we know as outsiders – would you move him off shortstop? They're moving him off shortstop, at least for the rest of the season, just to try to keep him from re-aggravating the shoulder issue. But given what we've seen from him defensively, that there is the shoulder issue, that they have another shortstop coming up behind him, who unfortunately is also hurt, had a fluke injury out for the year. But assuming C.J. Abrams comes back and he's healthy and still projects to stay at shortstop, do you think about moving Tatis as much as anything just for his own good to try to keep him healthier? I don't know that this plan keeps him any healthier. Um, the, the threat to the left shoulder is on diving plays. Mm-hmm. Well, you could end up diving the outfield just as well. The, the risk seems to have come on swings and when he runs the bases. Mm-hmm. Like That's when he's actually aggravated the injury. He's still going to be doing those two things as, as a right fielder. I also don't – I think he's error prone. I think he's not a gold glove level shortstop. I think he's plenty good to stay there, at least for a few years, and maybe eventually moves to third base or, or, or to an outfield spot. I think moving to right, right field – chips away at his value in a way that's completely unnecessary for a 22 year old. And and I'd add that, you know, I don't think they're doing this because of the injury. I mean, they'll say whatever they say, but to me, this is, we want to get our best players on the field without benching Eric Hosmer. (laughs) This really feels like a personnel, like they traded for Adam Frazier and all of a sudden it's like, well, what do we do now? Yeah. Uh, So this feels like moving the puzzle pieces around. I don't know why they just don't play Cronenworth and right. Katisa shortstop, but I don't, the idea that he's less, he's less a threat to his own health and right. As opposed to short, doesn't track with me at all. I don't get that at all. You mentioned Juan Soto in passing. Uh, Acuna, I agree, would have been right there had he not had a, his own catastrophic injury. Is there anybody else you either think could be in the conversation, say, next year, whether it's somebody who just didn't have a great year this year or who was hurt or somebody who's young who you think think might break out into that tier? Because as I was kind of just glancing at leaderboards here while we talk, too, there are a lot of guys who I thought maybe – would have gotten to that conversation. Like I thought Xander Bogarts maybe had one more big step forward, but it looks like he's just going to settle in as a regular all-star. Trey Turner, kind of the same thing. Great players, not in that uppermost echelon. Is there anybody we haven't mentioned who you think deserves a, a notice? Or do, you, or do you just, are you just happy to insult everybody else in baseball? <laughs> I, was, I did mention Betts in the piece today. And Betts is like, he's been on this top five level for a while where if he had that two or three year stretch as he did the, the year as the MVP 2018. Uh, but all the players you, you mentioned, they're all, again, they're very good players who might lead the league in war in a given year, but aren't the best player in baseball. That's restricted to a fairly small number of players at any one time. Uh, I think the next people we'll be talking about here are Soto. Think about Wander Franco, who's been, okay with the race so far and you know his limited playing time um the next you know is adley rutschman going to be so good on both sides of the ball that he'll be able to be this player um you know there's some buster buster posey in there obviously switch hitting baltimore's catchers have a track record that we don't want to get into (laughs) 
but no, I think I think Tatis, you know, to the extent that he, I think Tatis versus Acuna for the next three or four years be a really fascinating conversation. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that uh, Rutschman, <clears throat> Matt Weeders issue because uh, readers were. I, I want to get down fully down the rabbit hole, but essentially the question of what projections say about Adley Rutschman came up, and I thought, do we really want to get into what projection systems thought <laughs> the last switch hitting, power hitting catcher for Baltimore said? Because I'm pretty sure Matt Weider's Hall of Fame induction was supposed to be maybe next year. I might be a little ahead of schedule, but it should have been on the calendar already, and that just hasn't really worked out, and it just... You know, the same was true for Vlad Jr.'s projections for his first year. Now he's become that player. But one thing I keep coming back to on on questions like that, I, I think Adley Rutschman's going to be a star. He's my number one prospect right now. But projection systems seem to have a pretty hard time figuring out what to do with extreme outlier performers in the minors when predicting what they're going to do right out of the shoot. Have you noticed the same thing? Am I just talking out of the air here? No, that's right. It's hard because you've got limited data. Players are advancing much more quickly than they used to. Rutschman, I mean, I think the the pandemic and the lost minor league season is going to really screw with our projection systems for a while to come. But there was that stretch where players were coming to the majors and instantly being good. We know that yes. career paths are different now. Um, it used to be, you know, you're good, you got to get improved until you're 27, and then you peak for a while and then you slide down. And that's no longer the case. So it's almost like we're having to rebuild our, our thoughts and not just from an analytical standpoint, like us talking about it, but the models themselves are almost got to be rebuilt for what is the new way in which players age. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the 2021 season so far. And I have been uh, turning into a grumpy old man, essentially. Yeah, turning into. Turning, hey, hit you with my cane. This season sucks. We already know who all the playoff teams are, almost all the playoff teams. And I have found I'm generally not one to say I'm getting disinterested in a major league season. That's really never been the case. And I find that as I look at the scores each night, I think well, they're out of it. They're out of it. Those two teams are out of it. Those two teams are out. Of it. Those two teams aren't even trying anymore. And I don't like that that's come up into my thinking because I was I view myself as sort of one of the one of the holdouts, right? One of the people baseball was never going to lose. They're not losing me, but I think hopefully people know what I mean. That I have that sense of not everyone's trying. And this regular season's over, and we're kind of ready for October already, even though as we talk, it's mid-August. What 
you've written a bit about this, especially about the whole thing about teams not trying when you did your third third previews recently through the newsletter. I know you talked a lot about this and called out certain teams for it. But what's your sense of why are we the way we are right now in baseball? Why are we in this situation where it feels so stratified and that the regular season doesn't have as much to offer maybe the rest of the way as it, as it feels like it should? I come into this from a standpoint of somebody who doesn't like expanded playoffs, who's a regular season baseball fan. I love the regular season. The regular season has been degraded over time by the expansion of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. What happens in August and September now is we focus so much energy on these 525 teams, these teams scrambling for 85, 86 wins. Mm-hmm. That's just not that interesting. And we're not spending a lot of time talking about the Dodgers or the Yang, the Rays or the Astros, the teams that are great because well, they've just about clinched their playoff spots. And, you know, we'll worry about them when we get to October. So the end of the regular season, which, you know, I mean, not to, I tend to have a habit of dating everything to the 80s. And you get that whole thing, well, baseball is best when you were 12 years old. Well, somebody has to be right about that. Baseball had to be best at some point. And I think that when we had divisional races that could be between great teams, I think that's when baseball could dominate the headlines late this season. And I, as much as baseball will say this is better with the expanded playoffs and more teams having an interest, I think it really does kind of cause a problem at the end of the year just because we're focused on the wrong teams to me. Setting that aside, this is a, a unique season. We had fewer buyers and more sellers than I can remember. There are 10 playoff spots, and just 16 teams went out and tried to improve themselves at the deadline plus whatever it was the Cardinals were doing. Um, <laughs> that, that to me is a bigger, 16-14 is a pretty significant thing. I mean, usually it's been around 18 to 20 teams will try to improve. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened this year. Some te- more teams came into the season not caring. I think you've got, still got teams that don't want to spend money because of not having fans in the stands last year. I don't think it was any one reason. Um, but So you have fewer teams competing to begin with. The trade deadline was more about sellers. Um, I think the individual issues this year, like normally if the races aren't that good, there are fantastic individual stories. And we just don't have those this year. I mentioned earlier the injuries. Jacob deGrom was a great story. He hasn't pitched since early July. Fernando Tatis is a great story. I have no idea when he's active or not. Acuna blew out his knee. He's out for the year. Uh, Trout, of course, always a great story. I, I can I can hear Ben Lindbergh coming after me for, for saying that Trout's no longer the, the best player in baseball. Um the, the individual thing this year has been injuries and pitchers not pitching as much. And I, I think that's affected the season. So now we have you know, not, as, not as many teams are trying. We don't have the great individual stories that we could focus on. So what are we going to talk about? Or the, the crappy extra inning rule, the dumb seven inning doubleheaders. And you may agree with either of those. I don't want to put that on you. But no, I don't. it's just a lot of things wrong. Or and we also, parallel to this, have some terrible off the field stories. I mean, I know... I disagree about the minor league restructuring, mm-hmm. um, but obviously a lot of people feel like that's been very bad. I would say I'm also on the other side of the blackouts conversation, but anything you say about baseball publicly, the second comment on your tweet is, well, lift the blackouts. I mean, I can literally yeah. say chocolate cake is good. Lift the blackouts. Lift the blackouts, yes. Um, the, the Trevor Bauer story is obviously one of the biggest stories in baseball. That's not a positive one. That's not one that's going to get people excited about baseball. Um, that That's a pretty bad story for baseball, not just – the actions of Bauer, what they may have been, but what, who knew what, and did the Dodgers sign him knowing this stuff? I mean, this isn't, this isn't getting people bringing, this is an advertisement for the NFL. So there's just a lot of things. The excitement of having baseball back in April. Look, I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. We didn't watch any baseball, baseball in April and May last year. I was, it was great. But I think if you just evaluate this season on its own, 
It just hasn't been a very good season. Do you feel like baseball could do a better job of marketing itself? Obviously, the terrible stories are what they are. There's nothing. I'm not. You know that that's a separate issue. But I have argued this for a while. I mean, I feel like this has been. A, this is not new to me. This is not even new to us. I feel like we have been trying to. We've had this conversation probably since Bud Selig took over as commissioner, and it felt like the MLB's public relations strategy was to cast the players as the bad guys. Um, which has worked too, because anytime you start to try to talk about maybe players should be paid more money or this player's worth that, the owner stands show up in your mention to defend the billionaires. Uh, but I, I feel like there is still more that MLB could be doing to highlight the fact that there are some pretty amazing athletes playing the sport. And I've seen a little bit more of it the last five years, maybe in the previous 20 combined, but I feel like it's still not enough. It certainly doesn't parallel what I feel like, again, this is all this is strictly opinion at this point, but what the NFL and the NBA particularly managed to do to market their stars, what should MLB, what more could MLB be doing that they are, that they're not, that puts them essentially in third place? Well, yeah, this is 50 years. My entire life, MLB has been trashing the players. You know, they're, they're greedy. They want more money. They're disloyal. They're drug users. They're cheats. This is literally the messaging MLB has been doing for my entire life. Um, And I look at a, a game like last week, you know, I, I get that it was an event tied to the Field of Dreams movie and putting building the ballpark in the cornfield in the middle of nowhere. And there was an energy behind it that was because of those things. And I, I, t- I mean, it was a great game. Nine, eight, five lead changes, a bunch of superstars hit home runs. You had a walk-off from one of the most watchable guys in the game. You're not going to get that every Thursday night. But to me, it was all the lead-up. Like, why can't baseball do that every week? Why is there not a showcase game exclusive to, to Fox on Thursday night every year. I mean, every, of every week. And I know there's a Sunday night game, but it's Sunday night. It's So there's a Saturday night game. Well, it's Saturday night. Put the game on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday. And have your broadcast partner treat it as an event. The way I put it was, they Fox treated that game like an NFL game. With the camera work and the drones and all the investment in making it look good. And it doesn't do that for your typical Saturday night game. I just feel like baseball needs to say, hey, look, we're baseball. Stop apologizing for being baseball and saying that you need this huge gimmick to get people to tune into a game on Thursday night. You have incredible athletes, the best players who have ever played the game. And yeah, there are conversations to be had about the game itself, but that's for guys like you and me on a podcast. Your broadcast partners should be in the booth talking up Tim Anderson and Aaron Judge and how great they are. And they shouldn't be complaining about where the shortstop is playing. Use the broadcast to sell the game sell the game through the broadcast and get people to tune in unapologetically. It shouldn't be, excuse us, we want to put a baseball game on a Thursday night at eight o'clock. It should be, F yeah, baseball. There's a game. The, the Mets are playing. Brandon Nimmo is so much fun to watch. He's playing the Braves. You know, Ian Anderson's been a great story. These are people you want to see. Baseball just doesn't position itself that way. It almost leads itself, leads itself to the fans to say, hey, come watch baseball. And then you're in the position of guys like me saying, please like my sport. It shouldn't be that. It should be, like I say, as you say, I say, FBI baseball. Man. That's what I want to, that's what I want baseball to be more. I want baseball to be proud of itself and not just, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do all these bells and whistles for a single game on a Thursday night in the middle of August, and then we'll let you get back to watching fake football. Come on. Be proud of your damn sport. <laughs> I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, just in passing to you. You said you didn't agree with some of, you know, I, I'd commented on baseball uh, gutting the minor leagues. And really taking control of the minor leagues in particular. And you said you didn't really agree with that. So what is your take? Where do we disagree on that topic? 
I don't have a problem with saying we, we don't need a seven layer minor league system anymore. Um, the minor league system as constructed dates to the 60s, 70s. Um, baseball players enter pro ball more prepared to play than ever before. Uh, we can evaluate them at lower levels better than ever before. I think a four or five layer minor league system is fine for getting the best players to the major leagues. Um, I think reducing the draft to 20 or 25 rounds worked. I went, I, I apologize, Keith. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I know I looked at, I did like spot check the Florida state league for one year. And it was like a third of the players played in the major leagues. And a fair number of those were either major leaguers on rehab or mm -hmm. guys who threw 22 innings in the back of a bullpen over three years. Yep. Like you, you, it, by streamlining the minor leagues, Players will play against better competition all the way through. You won't have you know, all of these other. Uh, you won't have all of these other steps that guys have to go through. When I defended this decision, I also thought that teams would have fewer players under control, and I thought that would be a good thing. I think there are a lot of player people who go into you know are in the system that don't need to be in the system. It was my hope that by reducing the minor league, the affiliated minor league uh, footprint, that we might see a growth in independent baseball which was used, used to be a thriving thing in this country is really kind of a small thing reduced to certain geographical footprints at this point. I thought this could be a net positive for overall. It turns out baseball, MLB teams still have control of 180 players and um, we haven't seen the explosion in the minors. I made the point, and I think we talked about this a long time ago when you looked at the, the markets that were being abandoned. There were a lot of places that just, they weren't supporting the minor league team. And the only reason the minor league team existed was because somebody else was paying the big bills, which is the players and, and the managers and the coaches. Like if, if baseball is really as popular as it's supposed to be in all these places, we've seen this, right? Oh, how can you take baseball away from all these cities? Well, that's an opportunity for independent baseball. And if independent, if operators aren't going in and saying, we're going to build this league over four counties in the middle of Idaho or whatever, I think that tells you that maybe it's not as popular as we want to believe it is. I think people are still going to come to the game. I, I, I'm sorry, I, the phrasing's wrong. People will still find their way to baseball. If you're going to find your way to baseball, you're going to do it in a thousand, a thousand different ways. Most of them are, I'm playing the game. And I just think the overall sturm and drang under, of this, this, this topic um, was overwrought. I think baseball is going to be fine with fewer minor league teams, but I am hopeful that it will, true independent ball will grow up in, in, the, in the place of what you know, the extra affiliated teams. Uh, it's interesting because I also agree. I agree with you on some of that. The biggest thing is that the idea that Major League Baseball – not having affiliated teams in certain parts of the country was going to be way less damaging than, you know, say folks who, who looked at a map and colored in parts of the country that didn't have a team locally. And, you know, to me, a lot of that was like the electoral map shenanigans where people would color the United States by county that they voted for. It's the land, land doesn't buy hot dogs. Right. And you know what? A lot of those folks are just either there, there aren't enough people in those areas or they had a team and they didn't go. And we can talk about why they didn't go. The stadium wasn't nice. The you know, it was price. Was it bad teams? Was it ownership? Whatever. They didn't go. To me, I actually thought getting rid of some of those markets, no one wanted to be in Clinton, Iowa. No one wanted to be in Lancaster, California. No, no major league team wanted to affiliate there. Well, at the end of the day, that should matter, right? If, if there's, if, Everyone is saying, we just, we don't even care. You can put us in a cornfield in Iowa. We just don't want to be in Lancaster. Okay, fine. You know what? We shouldn't have a team in Lancaster. What lost me in particular was saying, because Dick Monfort and Jim Crane don't want to have more than five minor league 
levels don't want to have more than uh, they really don't want to have more than five affiliates, although you can have up to six because you can have two complex league teams because they don't want that. Nobody can do that. Whereas I thought, hey, what if we just switch this? Because now there's no short season, right? There's nothing in between complex leagues and low A. And I think that's a developmental problem. Where do you put the kid who was drafted out of high school last year, played in the AZL or whatever they're calling the Florida Man League now, and then the next spring isn't ready to go to low A? Well, now he's got to sit in extended spring again and go back to the complex league? Well, he feels like he's making no progress. And he probably isn't making a lot of progress. What if I'm a GM and, and my owner is willing to spend the money and I say, let's have one more team in between to fill that developmental hole? Well, the problem now is you can't do that because the cheap owners said, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want anyone else to have a competitive advantage over us. How could we allow that to happen? And so they set up a system that enfor- essentially enforced, well, nobody can spend anything extra on player development, which to me just it's, it's a whole mindset where the minor leagues, there are many owners who think of the minor leagues as a cost to be born rather than a pipeline of talent. It's talent development that also maybe does contribute something to helping grow the game by giving people local minor league, local baseball options to attend in person. That's where I feel like we lost out. Maybe that means we would have lost half of short season baseball. Okay, well, if the market doesn't support it, I think that's fine. But instead, they had to wipe the whole level out. And I I personally feel like I've seen it this year where the levels, what the levels used to mean, the four full season levels, is very different. And we may see development tracks change from what they used to be because of the lack of, of that level, especially for the youngest players. With college players, you know, another thing you and I feel like we've been talking about forever. College players got to be ready to go out to full season ball or you pick the wrong guy. But the high school guys and, and international free agents too, I feel like they've, they've lost something. That seems to me very different than the argument you were detailing, seeing from other people that we're, we're losing the grassroots. We're losing touch with certain communities, which I, I think that's where we agree. That's probably, I don't know that baseball is losing very much in those areas. I can't speak to the effects on individual or group development. That's that's certainly more your uh, bailiwick. Uh, I will say, though, that the idea that everybody has to have the same number of minor league teams is consistent with what we've seen from the owners for the last 30 years, which is compete less, guarantee profits more. There's no difference philosophically in saying everybody has to have four minor league affiliates, affiliates plus a complex league team, and everybody can only spend this much on international free agents. And anybody, everybody can only spend this much on salaries without invoking incredibly difficult uh, penalties, not just the financial penalties, but things like you know draft pick reductions and things like that. So it's consistent with what MLB teams have been trying to do for a long time, and frankly doing for a long time, which is saying, we're all not going to compete that much. We can't get a payroll. We have to get a, to get a payroll cap through. But we can do all of these things that force everybody to compete exactly as much as we want, as we all want to. Nobody can get too far ahead. Um, and I don't like it. I, baseball has basically been trying to solve its problems with less competition. And my feeling for years has been, no, the, we need more competition. And uh, the, the reduction in minor league affiliates certainly fits that model. Last question for you, and this is building off of something you just uh, at least hinted at. You know, we've got a CBA negotiation coming up. Both sides are saying they want to come to an agreement, but also it seems like the philosophical gulf and that and just generally level of animosity between the two sides has kind of widened in recent years. Uh, we all know what the owners want, and I don't really care if the owners get what they want out of a negotiation. I feel like I'm probably happier if the owners get less of what they want in a negotiation. But if you were advising Tony Clark in 
for the union side in the upcoming CBA negotiation, what item or items would you advise him to push for? Aside from, like you said, salary cap. Obviously, ownership's going to ask for salary cap, and the union is going to say, ha, 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 no, and then they'll move on to something else. But what other items, subjects, specific asks do you think should come from the union side in this upcoming negotiation? The biggest thing I wanted to see is uh, the, a much larger minimum salary. So many of the strategies that we see now are built upon the fact that young players, zero to three players in the vernacular, are vastly underpaid to the, relative to their contributions. So the minimum salary now is about 560 grand. I think that should be tripled. I would make it $2 million, just make it a nice round number. Um, it hasn't kept pace oh, with You just gave Dick Monfort two heart attacks. That's tough for him. Just by saying that. Uh, I don't, I think that's where the problem, because teams are, these players are more valuable than they've ever been before. As I said before, players come into professional ball more ready to play. Players reach the majors more ready to play and to contribute, in part because of the way, some of the ways the games have changed. game has changed. Um, and that would be the biggest thing. Cause I think that would change a lot of these strategies. It would make these rebuilding strategies more expensive. It would force teams to win more. It would change the, the, the relative values of, you know, shortly you know, three to five year veterans. A lot of these guys are getting on tendered now or lower level free agents where they're just ignored in favor of a $500,000 player. Let's make these projects more expensive. And it would also be a backdoor way of pushing more revenue to the players. A player who starts at $2 million is going to be able to ask for six his first year in arbitration as opposed to 1.2. Um, it would it would be a way of, it would solve to me a lot of the problems right now with the player compensation model. You're never solving free agency. Teams are never going to go back to, to paying for service time, which is not going to happen. This is the way you, you address that. Um, so, and, and, and sorry, go ahead, Keith, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was, I didn't want to cut you off there. And I, I think that is also going to help. I think it would make teams less likely to go through these long rebuilds. Cause if you're going to have to pay, you know, 80, 90, hundred million dollars, no matter how bad you are, it would effectively be like putting in a payroll floor. Like the payroll floor now is 26 times 550. Third, I can do math, 15 million or so. And you would immediately make that payroll floor, you know, 26 times two, uh, 52 million. Because teams pay for roster spots. And this gets into another thing. I would mm-hmm. say, I want, if you, you get, once you're promoted to the majors, you get a major league salary the rest of this year. I think that's a backdoor way of fixing the roster churn that is so much an ugly part of baseball right now. Um, a guy goes in, throws five innings for his team, eats innings for the bullpen, and he goes back to the minors for a week. It's a miserable way for the bottom three or four guys on a roster to live. Um, I think that's, a, that's something you could fix. So it would, again, add cost to these teams. Look, you can make this roster change, but that's going to cost you money. Right now, there's absolutely no cost to the churning of these rosters. It also makes the game less attractive. These teams with 14 pitchers, um, and if you know, effectively 28, 29-man rosters, it's just making. It's one of the things that's contributing to making the game unwatchable. So those are two things that I think you can possibly get at the table. That because the second thing doesn't sound like a whole lot. I don't think it's actually going to be a huge financial cost, but it just it puts some friction between you know the team and the next transaction. Uh, and then the minimum salary is something that's been negotiated over the years. And I think you make a reasonable case that it hasn't remotely kept up with revenues. And it doesn't affect the biggest ticket item. It doesn't make you come in and have the salary cap discussion, payroll cap discussion. You're not having the luxury tax dis- discussion. I would come in and focus on the bottom of the pyramid first, because I think that's where you can do the most good. I love that. Actually, I particularly love the idea of the if a player gets recalled – even if he gets sent back down, he still makes a major league salary. It doesn't even have to be the rest of the season. I like your idea the most because it's the best for the players. But even if it's he's up for a day, but he gets three weeks of salary. 
So it's imposing a pretty substantial tax on that kind of transaction. And so you would eliminate you would eliminate roster churn. Right. I, I mean, that's a per, that is that is the ideal way. The teams that were treating AAA as essentially glorified taxi squad. And if we could, I, I am a hundred percent in favor of anything that gets rid of that because I think it contributes to lower watchability of the sport. One thousand percent. And I do think one problem that we have is is uh, I'm sure you've had this experience where you turn on a game and. You look, and it's more, way more likely to happen with a pitcher. It's like, who? I follow these guys for a living. And I would say every couple of weeks at least, there's some reliever at the back of someone's bullpen, and I'll say, don't know him. Never made a prospect list for me. Never ran into him in the minors. Never ran into him in fall league. Never saw him in high school or college. And Occasionally I'll look and say, oh, yeah, I saw that guy eight years ago. But generally it's, it's guys who just – you know, sometimes they turn to Tyler Gilbert and become great stories, but it's guys who just sort of floated along and they come up because teams are trying to run 16-man pitching staffs by churning the roster. And I think your idea would do a lot to address that. You'd have fewer pitching changes and less of the this you know, the I hate to say it, but they're lower quality pitchers at the backs of bullpens as well. We're kind of running out of pitchers, which didn't seem possible a couple of years ago. But if you if you have 470 of them in the majors at any given time, yeah, that's that's a problem. I want to. Yeah. I know we're up against it. I want to make one last point about this upcoming negotiation. It's unlike any that we've seen before in that the, the it's two parallel conversations. There's the conversation we always have about pay and service time and the thing, the mechanics of how baseball is run. But there's also on issues uh, that are, affect the players on the field that have to be negotiated that have come to a head and are going to have to be dealt with. And those alone are difficult to get through. Um, and for the first time, they almost have a prominence that they've never had before going into a CBA. Um, the players aren't just going to allow the league to change the rules willy-nilly. Um, and there are a lot of things that, you know, I will say this, there are things that you and I agree need to be changed and you and I might not agree need to be changed, and all of them are on the table. Um, so you've got this on-field conversation happening at the same time you're figuring out how to carve up $10 billion a year, and that just makes it all the more complicated. My guest today has been the wonderful Joe Sheehan, who writes the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. You can subscribe at Joe Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N. So that's J-O-E-S-H-E-E-H-A-N.com. You should also follow him on Twitter, at Joe underscore Sheehan. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Keith. Take care. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe. And if you haven't, please, please go get that vaccine. As always, if you have questions, if you're hesitating, reach out to me anywhere on social media, through my own site, The Dish. I am happy to try to answer questions and hopefully convince a few more people to go get the vaccine. Stay safe. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events 
the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.